I kept this like coal fire burning in me, this like resentment towards being muzzled. A female agent told me I had to have long hair, otherwise the men in Hollywood wouldn't want to sleep with me. And if they didn't want to do that, then they wouldn't hire me. And I, you know, was terrified of being on the streets again. Gosh forbid you speak up, because how dare you, uppity. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed. When you see your favourite artist, politician or writer, do you ever wonder what first made them step forward to bring attention to what they had to say? This podcast is all about going behind the celebrity to understand how they came to find their voice, from keeping a childhood diary, say, to a chance encounter or going to that life-changing film or concert. Each week we speak to a prominent public figure about their journey to find their voice and perhaps along the way we'll pick up some insights for ourselves. Let us know what you think by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and tweeting with the Intelligence Squared hashtag IQ2. Rose McGowan might once have been described as an actress and model with something of a cult aura about her because of her maverick approach to roles ranging from edgy 90s films such as The Doom Generation and Grindhouse to the long-running supernatural TV drama Charmed. But now the first word we'd use to describe her is activist, for she's the woman who went public with sexual assault allegations about the powerful Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, how he allegedly used lawyers and blacklisting to shut down the careers of women who dared say no to him. Others eventually came forward, spawning the global Me Too movement, but Rose McGowan was the first. She was among the so-called silence breakers named as Time magazine's Person of the Year in 2017 – thanks to her fearless, outspoken campaigning over what she sees as a conspiracy in the entertainment industry to cover up and enable sexual abuse of women and girls. In her autobiography, Brave, Rose McGowan describes growing up in two cults, the cult of Hollywood and, before that, the religious cult of the children of God in the 1970s and 80s. Her childhood was one of abuse and neglect. She spent many of her chaotic childhood and teenage years struggling to avoid abuse, fending for herself on the streets and earning the money to feed herself. I can't think of anyone more fascinating to ask how you found your voice. Thank you so much for coming in, Rose. And I'm sorry, I know even just describing what you've endured is actually quite a difficult thing for you to hear back. You were raised in the Children of God cult in Italy which was very abusive of women and children especially. And in your memoir, you say your life as a performer began in that cult. So was performance a kind of survival instinct? Performance was a survival instinct, but also what was expected and what was promoted. And I think it was just some way also, I think I started back then trying to communicate with the public about this, you know, through my eyes, like, I don't necessarily want this, but here I am you'd be sent out onto the street, wouldn't you, to sing and perform. Tell me what you were supposed to do and why. Uh, We were attracting other members, supposedly, uh, or be, as children, taken to um, sick children's hospitals to perform for them, singing Jesus songs that, you know, were um, invented. I mean, they're all invented, but invented, in this case, by the children of God. And... It was strange. I ran into someone the other day, and he sang a song to me from Children of God, and I almost collapsed. I hadn't heard it in so long. 
And well, I guess there was a post-traumatic stress in hearing that again. Yes, definitely. It's it's really multi-layered uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome, which is certainly I definitely I would say suffer from. How do you look back then at that time, and how have you tried to deal with that trauma? I don't know that I've dealt with it so well. Uh, I think in my book, I worked a lot of stuff out. You know, that was for me a major way of doing it. Um, I I never really went to therapy because I I think, and maybe this is wrong of me, but I couldn't quite conceive of somebody that would have understood the extreme nature of my life in order to counsel me. Again, this could be just wrong of me, but, and maybe there is somebody out there. I'm sure my brain could use help. (laughs) Um, I have to say, you said you learned to, disassociate yourself from what was going on so you were nearly always outside yourself watching and filming and documenting so you have this document of all these things that you have in your memory yes everything replays for me um, weirdly enough that I came to be in the movies because I would I found a camera when I was little and it got taken away from me but I remembered looking through the rectangle and I started just disassociating and looking at everything that was happening to me through the lens of an invisible camera, almost as if I was the person things were happening to, but there was a me across the room filming for posterity. It's almost as if I knew. But I think also, yes, disassociation, I'm sure. Now, you moved to the United States at the age of 10, and you had your first day at school in an American Navy base. Why was that a defining moment for you? That was a really defining moment for me because... I don't remember any mirrors in how I grew up. And we were raised, it was a multinational, multiracial cult. Um, But there was no emphasis placed on or knowledge of race or um, separation because we were all children of God. And, you know, the unified vision was what they wanted. By the way, I've never been able to quite figure out what their main tenet was as it changed all the time. But the school I went to, I landed when I came to America on a Navy base, and it was, it was kind of savage, uh, to be honest. And this is where they changed my name the first day from Rosa to Rose. What just they decided to give you? They they told me I didn't want to sound Mexican, but I didn't know what that was. And um, so my name is Rose, not Rosa. Maybe someday I'll take it back. I don't know. And. Uh, they made me lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance. And I heard the teachers behind me say, uh, uh, we're going to get the communist out of her. To which I replied, Italians were fascists. Wow, that's quite a thing to hear on your first day at school. Um, where was this base? It was in a place called Gig Harbor, Washington. So it's a little town somewhere in Washington State. And it my grandfather was in the Navy, and so that's we got sent there, even though he'd already died. But I think it was my father's only place that he really knew at the time. That moment captures so much about, um, you know, certain expectations, the Pledge of Allegiance and so on. And you've said, I find the American system aggressively determined to crush free thought and those it labels other. Growing up in Europe has left you with what you call a European sensibility. How important has that been in how you approach the world? I think it's been very important in how I approach the world, but also I was within Europe but not integrated in Europe. I mean, I was behind castle walls, really. There was a a duke that was in the Children of God, so we grew up 
on his medieval properties, his estate, his estate. Mm-hmm. and it, it 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 affected me in the sense that I, I think it was more the multinational nature of of the people around me that gave me a broader world view. And then when I went to America, it was there was just so much anger because I was different. There was just so much anger towards a child, and I I would look at these adults with. I mean, there's something about me that would just make them kind of crazy. And there was something about me that they wanted to crush. And I I, I couldn't understand how they wanted to do that to a 10-year-old. And if they were doing it to me, what were they doing to everybody else who didn't have an outsider's perspective? How would they fight and how would they defend themselves against such a thing? The answer is most of them don't. Well, not long after you come to America and you have your first experience in the school system, you read the autobiography of Malcolm X, who was just 11. What impact did that have on you? Certainly, you know, my uh, girlfriend um, in school was African-American and her father had a copy of the book. And I remember trying to understand what race was about when I was little because I had not, we never talked about it, right? And uh, it wasn't the cult's focus. That was more of a homogenized one organism of thought. And so when I picked up this book, you know, the the only a fool would let his enemies teach his children. It struck me that a lot of the teachers around me were my enemies of thought. And it, it kind of helped me in my solitary pursuit of um, kind of being a singular person. Literature and drama were such an important part of your childhood. And you've, you played Antigone in the Sophocles play. What was it about that role? And what was it about books and the characters in them that was so important to you? Well, books and and characters saved my life, I think. I think it was a way, as it is for many people, just to escape into other worlds, other rooms, other voices. Antigone specifically was something that I was drawn to her power and her grace and her and her rage in a lot of ways. Well, she's the sister trying to bury um, her brother. Correct. And And it's the only play I've ever done. It was really gratifying. I remember making a couple in the audience cry. I thought that was beautiful. (laughs) But then I got absorbed into the film world, you know, some years after that and and never wound up doing theater again. But Antigone stands as, it just kind of felt like I was out there with a flaming sword, which I loved. (laughs) And and when you finish books, you'd be quite upset, wouldn't you? Why was that? Oh, yes. I would have funerals in my head for the characters because I missed them because they became my friends. They became my partners. They became whatever it was that was preferable to what was going on outside of the book world, you know, and they became very real to me. Are there any particular characters that you remember for um, a special? Yes. Edmond Dantes and The Count of Monte Cristo I really related to. I love that book. The Wronged. The Wronged. The Wronged Man. The Wrongly Imprisoned Man. Yes. Yeah. Injustice. And you've said that you've always had this ability because of the abusive experiences you've had from such a young age in your life to always pick up on danger when you go into a room or any situation. Can you describe how how you use that skill? Well, for instance, right now my back is to the door, which I don't particularly enjoy. Maybe I've seen too many mobster movies, or maybe it's real. I don't know. I It, it is something that people um, that have had come from abuse readily pick up on, because you don't know when you walk through the door, you have 
it's it's always eggshells. You don't know what face is going to be presented to you or what extreme situation. I, I also say, you know, I had some good times too growing up. It wasn't all horrible, um, but it was hard. And it was hard when you're somebody labeled other, which I know a lot of people can relate to. What were the best things that you remember about growing up then? I think all my brothers and sisters and the times that, you know, we'd get to be together and because my parents split up and married other people fairly often and so we would move a lot uh, depending on that so there'd be three of us here or four of us there or five of us together or just two of us and whenever we had a lot it was it was wild but and chaos in a lot of ways but also they were you know my fiercest allies and we were kind of like the Adams family and whatever street we ever lived on we were the weirdos with a bunch of kids right and and the ones, and because of that, I never really bothered making too many friends. I, I kind of just stayed with my brothers and sisters. I, I just didn't relate to people my age really well. You're right to emphasize there were things that were wonderful about your life, and it isn't all the negative. But given that this is about how you found your voice, there's one story in your memoir that I have to ask about. You were punished once by your mother's boyfriend by being forbidden from speaking for a whole month. It was pretty abusive. Um, time. But I had to ask what impact that had on you, on your adult life, and the fact that you're such a campaigner now, that the one thing you use is your voice at every opportunity. Yes, it had a huge impact on me, the rage that I felt, uh, the unfairness, the injustice, and, and just a fundamental human right, which is to speak. You know, our, our goddess-given ability to do that, taken away, and for no reason that I could discern, it was, it was, it felt worse than the violence. I think in a way, a lot of, you know, people have mistaken some of my passion for anger, but there is, you know, I, I think a lot of people, especially women, tend to be scared of being angry or, or identifying as somebody who gets angry, which is sad because I could be angry at 4.12 in the afternoon and at 4.15 that thundercloud has passed and I'm back to jolly old Rose. But it formed me in a way that I, I, I just, I kept this like coal fire burning in me, this like resentment towards being muzzled and, and seeing how that was kind of in different ways perpetrated on so many people in the world. There are two films that you say had a really strong influence on you as a young woman and you were working in an old movie theatre at the time. And One was Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a <laughs> fantasy about a detective investigating a crime in a cartoon world starring um, Bob Hoskins, and the 1988 film Working Girl starring Melanie Griffith and Sigourney Weaver, which is one of my own all-time favourite films about a working-class woman trying to make it on Wall Street. Why those films? Those films, I mean, the, the juxtaposition of the two I really love, but they're both... Well, one, just the glamour of Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Jessica Rabbit, of course. And I would go into the theater that I worked in and put, I was, I was an usherette and worked behind the, the stand for popcorn, too. By the way, if you go to a matinee, it's always old popcorn from the night before. There's a tip. <laughs> <laughs> tip for you. But her singing her, you had plenty money, 1922, like that kind of stuff, I, I just loved. And so I'd put a flashlight under my chin and sing along with her and then run out of oh. the theater, just like a proper weirdo. <laughs> and then Working Girl, I was like, if she can do it, I can do it. Not that I came from 
somewhere in New Jersey trying to make it over the bridge in New York, but it, it was more just about kind of the world looking down on you and you knowing what you're really capable of. Looking back, I find like a lot of these films, I think they sold us this lie that we could make it, that there wasn't all these other forces at work. Oh, right. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's, that's Hollywood, kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were very aware of how young women are expected to dress and how they're expected to behave in Hollywood when you began your career. Tell me about how you tried to tackle that and how you approached your character in Charmed. I tried to tackle it, you know, I was told by uh, a female agent, females in Hollywood can do an awful lot of damage. Um, They support a system, not all of them, of course, but I would say a a large majority uh, support a system that doesn't support them. And I'm not talking about actresses necessarily. I'm talking about the the people behind the scenes. There's a lot of producers who are women, aren't there? Yes, of course, because the male director needs a mommy. I mean, that's kind of, I'm not, you know, I don't want to distill their work to just that. Their work is certainly more than that. But there is an element of, I mean, that's what I saw in sets. It was, it was a lot of mommying going on. And um, then there'd be the money producer, who was the guy, of course. The woman producer was not the money person, usually. Uh, it, it, and the female agent told me I had to have long hair, otherwise the men in Hollywood wouldn't want to sleep with me. She said it in a ruder term. And if they didn't want to do that, then they wouldn't hire me. And I, you know, was terrified of being on the streets again. And I, um, I grew my hair out. And the way I approached characters uh, dressing-wise was... I always try to be a bit subversive. Like I knew if the camera was going to be on my backside, I would pick a skirt that had weird prints on it that did weird things, <laughs> optical illusions. Or um, I tried my best in what was available to me, which because I was heavily blacklisted in film became not a whole lot. Um, you know, my career went a very different, I was on a very different trajectory when I was assaulted And then the heavy blacklisting came afterwards. The reason I wound up on TV is because the TV system was very separate from the film system then. And they hadn't gotten the news. They hadn't heard the word that I was unhireable. But I was thinking even things like there's the time you were told, you know, you weren't supposed to do anything to your hair in the break before filming restarted and you dyed it. What color? Bright red. Bright red. But I love how you managed to get them to accept it. Yeah, they were the the producers were like, what? There was an edict at the studio. The studio had nobody was allowed. No female was allowed to change her hair unless it was approved by him. And my co-star had cut bangs at one point and they freaked out that the audience wouldn't be able to recognize her. She had bangs that were fringe. Fringe, yes. Fringe. I'm in the UK now. (laughs) And so, yeah, I dyed my hair red and all I said was like, well, just say that a potion blew up in my face. It turned my hair red and I wanted to, I loved it and kept it. And those were the first lines of the season, (laughs) of course, to explain why I had red hair. It was never addressed again and the audience could still tell who I was. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, amazing they're that smart. <laughs> and, you know, you said that producers labelled you a, a, a bad girl. You looked like a bombshell, but you didn't speak like one. Can you explain what that meant? I would get an awful lot of, you're so smart for an actress, or you're too smart for your own good. I got those two things quite often. And, you know, my reply was usually, no, I'm just too smart for your good. And I'm making you uncomfortable because I'm what was coming out of my mouth, which has never really changed that much, to tell you the truth, just didn't match what I looked like. And I think I had gotten so divorced from what 
kind of almost a caricature that I looked like of Hollywood glam, um, I couldn't really see the problem with it. Uh, not that I think there should be one, by the way. I think mm-hmm. if you look a certain way and are intelligent and speak well, then go you. It just wasn't something that is um, expected. I had a, another female agent tell me I needed to stop speaking uh, as much in meetings because I was intimidating the men. I went into my car after that and cried, and I just, it's, it's hard not to feel despondent there. Well, it, it, in a sense, it's an exact connection to that thing when you're told not to talk, you know, as a punishment, that somehow women speaking and being themselves. Gosh forbid you actually speak. Gosh, gosh forbid you speak up, because how dare you, uppity. Uppity. Well, that's a really interesting word. And of course, it's loaded in, it's in a loaded racial, in way, as racial well. way as well. But it has a really useful meaning, isn't it? It's about getting above your place, what's yes. expected of you. Don't stand outside of your station. In your memoir, you recount the different ways actors and directors would humiliate you on set. There's the director who screamed bitch at you just for walking on the set. The actor who pushed a water bottle up your skirt. But also, and you've hinted at it already, the role of people like many women, you know, female producers who said nothing. And looking at your activism and looking at the way you speak about what's been going on in Hollywood, how important are the people who said nothing in this story? Hugely important. Um, That's what I call the complicity machine. You know, um, not just producers, but agents, managers, lawyers, development people, studio heads. They're all, you know, to an extent in on it. And by everybody just keeping the attitude of she wore a short skirt, she deserved it, which is kind of the collective or was anyway, the collective attitude. It keeps you very separate. You know, there's no human resources department for for actors. There's no, or actresses, there's there's nothing. And very often I was the only woman almost on a, an entire set because it's a very male-dominated crew usually. I found the complicity machine, I, I find them more guilty because a predator to me has something wrong in their head. I have to think that, I have to believe that. Um, otherwise I think my brain would explode. But I I don't understand how people can be so scared of doing the right thing that they would betray another human over and over and over again. The time when I really noticed you on Twitter, which you use in a really fascinating way to kind of make statements, one of the most significant statements you made before the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke was about... um, the, the mistreatment of women in general in, in casting and things. When you tweeted in June 2015 about that casting call for an Adam Sandler film, which required, which required you to wear a push-up bra, and you kind of, kind of posted the, the text or the detail of it, why was that the thing that made you speak out? I still don't really know. It was just so stupid. I was actually more vexed almost by, one, I knew it was a woman that had written that casting notice. I just instinctively did. And it turned out that it was, in fact, a woman that wrote it. And that she wrote it without even thinking. And we should say, it's both hilarious and horrific it's at horrific. the same time. And, and I think the part that offended me more, almost in the push-up bra and the, and the tight leggings, no white. Uh, maybe white makes you look heavier. I don't know what the reasoning is for that. But uh, was that make sure you read the script so you understand the context of the scenes. And I just thought, it's an Adam Sandler film. <laughs> what kind of 
context do I need other than his entire oeuvre, you know? Yeah. Well, you were the first woman to speak out about the allegations of rape and sexual assault by Harvey Weinstein and have written about them very powerfully and movingly. And the line that, if I may, I will quote at you, I was a newcomer, just barely making a living. He was a huge ogre of a man and I was a girl. I'm crying while I write this. Um, Why did you decide to go public when you did? It had always kind of been working up to that point, and I had sworn to myself that I would someday try to wrong, right this wrong, and I knew it wasn't just me. And when I spoke to Ronan Farrow, it was for NBC, actually. And we should say Ronan Farrow is the journalist who yes. wrote the piece for is it The New Yorker. The New Yorker, Which um, had a lot of other allegations and many other Correct. actors came forward. Correct, and I predated this. Um, I kind of got him in a bit of a war for the story with the New York Times. But that was when he was at NBC, that broadcasting company in America. And they, I went on record, and this was months before even the New York Times story, and they wouldn't, um, they buckled the pressure behind the scenes from the monster. And I, I just felt, one, societally, Trump was there, and it was during the election, that the presidential period, election, campaign. presidential election in America, the campaign, and it was just so blatant. What finally I was like, see, people, this is what sexism is, this is what racism is, and it's for somebody who can't seem to manage to tell the truth. Many times, he's in a bizarre way a truth teller. I mean, it, it is what it is, unapologetically, which is beyond the pale. But it's also something that I think is galvanizing and, and, and he I think it's almost like the good people on the left that needed to learn that this stuff is, still, is really real. Can I ask you, make a obviously very careful and thought through decision to refer to Harvey Weinstein only as the monster and never to use his name. Can I ask why that is? I just don't like his name. And I, I think, um, and I love words and crafting a story uh, that I worked really hard on. This book is not about the last year. It's about all the years. No, it's a fascinating, I've got to say, having read it, and I couldn't, I think I read it just in one sitting almost. It's an amazing personal uh, account of the movie industry, of your own remarkable life, um, and your personality. I mean, you are you. you are someone who, you know what you believe, and you don't, you don't conform Ever. I just never understood why somebody would, because to me, conformity chips away at you each little bit, each time that you make yourself less to make somebody feel temporarily more comfortable, you lose a bit of yourself. And I knew that at a very early age. And that's what I said about fiercely defending and protecting. You've identified the way girls you think are brought up and trained to be polite, not to cause offence, as key to their exploitation. Politeness is this strap you say that keeps our hands tied behind our backs then we meet wolves it kills us what would you like to change about how girls are raised to use their voices i would like them to use the word no not in the way um not in a crisis moment previous to that uh, i would like doctors to not say you're a brave little boy you didn't cry when you got your shot 
Uh, he only pushes you down in the schoolyard because he likes you. I would like parents and, and teachers and educators to really think about what these kind of messages send to girls, especially, but also to boys. It does a lot of damage on that side, too, you know. And, but I do think girls, like, the, the, the drilling into you to be polite and to keep your voice down is something that I think leads to a lot of bad situations. Do you ever feel angry that only a few women like you, even now really, have stood up and it took all the grief before others came out to say, me too? I think everybody has their own timeline. I have a hard time respecting people that aren't brave. Um, I understand that it's a lot to ask, but I also think if, you know, a giant bunch of us came out, it would be very hard to keep, to fire everybody all at once, you know, uh, I I don't think anger is the right word. I think sadness and disappointment. But also, you know, I've taken it on the chin. This last year has been pretty brutal. And it's hard to go against the grain. It's very hard to use your voice in opposition to injustice because injustice wants to stand. How has it been brutal this last year in particular? Well, it's been brutal because of the monster... Um, on you know, there was a million dollar bounty on my book. Uh, he had 125 pages of it stolen before it was published. Um, he hired the ex Mossad to infiltrate my life. I was terrorized at every turn. He he paid off newspapers and and writers to slander me. Um, we then, should say directors like Peter Jackson have come forward and in reference to other um, actors correct. and actresses and said, oh, I didn't hire them because we were told by Miramax they're difficult. Correct. Which is clearly the kind of scenario you're describing. God forbid anybody be difficult as a girl, but it's it's it wasn't true because you get the, the message so clearly in Hollywood, don't step out of line, little girl. It's It's something that's really quite revolting to me. You travel around the world talking about being brave. And I noticed in October you were in South Korea where women led a really big public protest about the scale of sort of um, different kinds of sort of sexual har- harassment and abuse. You know, the scale of men spying on women in public toilets and upskirting in South Korea is this kind of national crisis. What observations have you got, given that you do travel the world talking about these issues, about how sexual harassment and abuse operate in different places around the world. It's really quite fascinating. It's it's like a hydra, you know, you cut off one head and another one pops up. I don't know the answer to that. I really don't know other than to say it's fascinating to watch and each culture is is quite different. Um, maybe in America it's just a free-for-all with all of it. I don't know. But um, I will say it's incredibly gratifying to see people and hear people using their voice for the first time. What, what sort of things do people come up to say to you? It's pretty amazing, actually. I was in a, a McDonald's the other day, and this girl whose eyes almost popped out, she just said, I just read your book last night. I just finished it last night. And she had tears in her eyes, and she also said, me too, which I understood, uh, even though, like I said, my book is is not about that. But she... She felt heard, and she said it's the first time she felt heard by her family, and that because there was now this, like, hashtag, there was a way to communicate. And I, I get a lot of—it's very different. Um, the media likes to really slant things a lot um, and, and kind of often heap a lot on my shoulders, whereas people on the street, they usually just thank me. What difference has social media made to how you use your voice? 
Well, it allowed me to have one. And, and as I say in my book, it was uh, the actor Ashton Kutcher, who was on a show called That 70s Show. Uh, I was bored on a plane reading an article, and he was talking about Twitter. I think he was an early adopter of it. And he was saying how for uh, a person in the public eye, especially an actor, where everything is written for you to say, and when you, you previously did interviews, you know, or you did speak to the public, it was only what the interviewer was asking you. And usually quite slanted, especially if you were a girl, you weren't getting these deep questions usually. And it, he said it's the only way we can have a voice. And I, it, something clicked in my head. So I slowly started putting my toes in the water. And it, it always felt like I was just talking to one person instead of, you know, it going out over the, the broadcasting airwaves, so to speak. Because there's something when you're verified on Twitter... It goes, what you say goes immediately to the news organizations. And so I used it as a way of just disseminating information. I've kind of stepped back from a little bit in the past couple of months um, just to heal. Um, it coming off of a very, very hard and toxic year. I just wanted, I've, I've wanted a bit of a break and to settle my nerves a little bit because even touching the app is opening you up to like this viper's nest. Yeah, the abuse, the trolling. Oof, it's real. Which, of course, women get much more of than men. Of course. You directed your first feature film, Dawn, which was acclaimed, um, including at the Sundance Film Festival. You're now composing some of your own music. How important are these art forms now in expressing your voice? They're incredibly important. When I directed Dawn, which is, I call it a full feature in 20 minutes, um, and you can look it up on YouTube, just put in D-A-W-N and Rose McGowan. And it's set in 1961, and it's about what we do to girls, keeping them polite, and what happens when you meet a predator. It's it's saying, but told in this beautiful kind of peachy pink world. And then the music, which is what I've been crafting this album that was like, it's kind of the other side of my book. And We should say the lyrics talk about, they talk about lies, they talk about the hate and the rage directed at you. Yes. And in a with beautiful propulsive space music behind it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> been invaluable for me to keep my sanity that way you know and I wanted when I did Dawn I set out to make um, kind of a mini masterpiece because I didn't know if I'd ever get the opportunity to again since I knew I was going up against the machine and they don't look kindly upon that. Do you think you will given how acclaimed it is? Not one call came from a producer and it was nominated for Grand Jury Prize at Sundance and qualified for the Oscar that year. Not one call came from anybody um, this was before any of the, you know, the news broke or anything like that. And and the monster had recently just walked down the street with a pink P-word hat on, you know, celebrating women at the Women's March at Sundance. And so it wasn't surprising to me. So I, the answer is I don't know. I was, I, I'm, I'm a good actress, but I was a very, I'm a very good director. What are you going to do next? Finish the album, figure out how to release that, because I have no idea how. When you're kind of in another cult, you don't really have contact with other industries too much. And so it's been a really interesting year, just getting to meet people all over the world and, and, and not 
approaching them or having them approach me in a fan way, but in a real way, just a human to human way. It's been really gratifying. You know, for years when you're really famous, you have to hire people to keep the public away from you. So it's not like you integrate. People are perceived as dangerous and and threats. And it's been really wonderful to, in some ways, assimilate. But never entirely. Never entirely. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never conform. I hope not. Rose McGowan, thank you. Thank you. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed, and the producer was Farah Jasset. Join me next week when I'll be asking comedian Catherine Ryan how she found her voice. Thank you.